welcome to PE Talks Africa, the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association's podcast. In this series, industry leaders will share their views on the investment landscape in Africa and will discuss latest trends covering fundraising, deal making, value creation and exits across private equity, credit and venture capital. In this episode, hear from Stefan Bacard, Managing Director at Adenia Partners. Natalie Colby, Partner, Private Equity at Actis. Romain Pai, Chief Investment Officer Pan-Africa at African Infrastructure Investment Managers. And Nina Triantis, Head of Financial Sponsor Coverage at the Standard Bank, as they share their insights and experiences of exiting investments during uncertain times. The session, moderated by Nicholas Hughes, Partner at Clifford Chance, is part of AFCA's 2020 Focus Series, hosted in September 2020. Nick Hughes, a partner in the private equity team at Clifford Chance. I spend the majority of my time advising private equity investors on, on exits and, and other M&A transactions across the continent. Today's session is about exits, divesting during an economic downturn. And to frame this discussion, I thought it was important to, to give a bit of context as to, as to sort of where we are today. Clearly, we're in the midst of a global health crisis. The impacts across the continent have been far-reaching. We've seen trade and value chain disruption, reduced financing flows from remittances, tourism and aid, there's significant downgrades in, in GDP growth, and if not a capital flight, at least a lack of new capital coming to Africa. But it's clear that when you look at this, the impacts haven't been universal. We've seen huge variations across markets, sectors, and individual businesses. The latest data, which was released by AFCA yesterday, reported that the number of exits in the first half of this year was about half the level from 2019. Now, I'm sure everyone would recognize um, you know, some of the macro challenges which, which exits face in the current environment. But what I really want to do is, is sort of get underneath that, um, go beyond that and bring out some of the, the sector and regional variances that understand how our panel and their organizations have been going about implementing exits during this period, look at any impacts on deal terms we're starting to see. And, and finally, conscious this is the sort of last webinar in this Africa topic series, to look ahead and hopefully share some positive sentiments. So before I start with the questions, I'd just like to um, each of my panelists to introduce themselves. So, Roman, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, thank you, Nick. Um, hi, I'm um, Romain Pai. I'm um, CIO for AIM, which is um, uh, a private equity fund manager which is dedicated to infrastructure in Africa. We got over, around uh, $2 billion of asset and the management across seven funds. Great. Thanks, Roman. Um, Natalie, do you want to go next? Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Can you can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, so Natalie Colby, I'm a I'm a partner with Axis. I've been at the firm for going on 18 years now. Um, so what Axis does, we invest in the emerging markets exclusively across four main sectors: being private equity, infrastructure, energy, and real estate, with um, about 10 billion dollars of assets under management. Great. Thanks, Natalie. And and Stefan. 
Yeah, hi, everybody. Thanks, Nick. Uh, I'm Stefan Bacard, so I'm a managing director with Adenia Partners. Adenia is a private equity firm uh, operating exclusively in Africa. We have five offices uh, across Africa, $500 million uh, of asset under management, and one uh, maybe specificity of our positioning is that we we almost only take majority uh, deals or controlling companies. Okay, thanks. And, and Nina? Uh, thank you, uh, Nick. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm the banker on the panel. Uh, I work for Standard Bank, uh, Africa's largest bank, uh, run sponsor coverage, so deal with private equity across sector, uh, and in this regard, um, quite involved with uh, looking at both opportunities as well as exits for uh, private equity players. Um, I also run a specific sector. Uh, my sector is TMT, Telecoms Media and Technology. Thank you. Great. Okay. Well, look, th thanks very much, everyone. And look, I'm sure, you know, as was clear from, you know, the introductions given by the panelists to, to them and their organization, the real, a real variety of insights, which, which they'll be able to offer today. So I'd like to start, Natalie, perhaps coming to you to think about the, the exit environment. You know, obviously, you know, you and the actors team took over uh, the management of a large portfolio of assets last year. Exit planning was obviously something that was, was on your agenda. When you when you look at that portfolio now, what has been the impact of, of COVID and and the sort of wider environment in terms of what that has meant in terms of exit? Yeah, sure, Nick. I think we if you have a look at the impact, I'll probably bucket it into into three. I mean, firstly, there's there's those that um, have been indefinitely delayed. So you know where we were planning to exit or starting to run an exit process pre-COVID, we've had to shelve shelve some of them. And the main reason is is really the buyer universe. Um, and particularly if the buyer universe is an international buyer and a strategic coming from from another country, first of all, I mean they've had to they've had to kind of um, batten down the hatches on their side to to make sure that, that they can steer themselves through the COVID issues. Um, they've also had to look in strategically and decide whether they want to continue with you know investing in, in, in an acquisition in Africa, um, and also just the practicality of not being able to to, to travel. So I think that's that, that's one bucket. The second bucket is um, those that are that that were delayed because of COVID, but are now starting to come, to, you know, we're starting to revive those conversations. And again, those were, um, I'd say, buyer-led, but probably also from our side as well, where, again, all of us had to, you know, focus on, on the businesses that we were in, ensure that they, you know, had proper liquidity, et cetera. Um, and now, you know, and, and see, you know, get through COVID. And now that COVID has passed, those conversations are now starting to, to, to reopen. And we've actually seen in the last, I'd say, month to, to eight weeks, where those kind of conversations are are coming to the fore, um, and you know some of them being international buyers buyers as well. Um, and then the third one are those that have continued. I mean, we've we've, we've had quite a few exit processes that have continued through this through this this period. Um, it has it has been quite different. I mean, first of all, the, the diligence has obviously been very different. We've had to go virtually you know virtually and, and go online for a lot of the uh, of the diligence process, but also the 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 buyer trying to find seller and you know and 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 trying to meet on on terms has also been you know tough you know trying to understand what maintainable earnings is in this period trying to understand what 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 real cash what real cash is so that has also um had had some of a delay but there, there have been uh, we have been able to progress with 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 i'd say probably about a, a third of the deals that we were looking to exit okay so thank you so real real combination of, of factors having an impact uh, Roman, maybe if we could turn to you, and, and obviously with your focus being on the on the sort of energy and infrastructure sector, 
you know, how have you seen organizations' ability to exit across that market? Um, so if you look at a broader perspective, infrastructure is more defensive asset class. So we've seen uh, a great level of activity. Um, in terms of the more African context, the, the market has always been dominated by the power side where the revenue are contracted, provided a lot of visibility to, um, to the owners. So we, we've not seen uh, that much an impact on exit on this asset class. We've exited two assets in SA. But I, I agree with, um, with, with one point that I said earlier. What we have seen, I think, the easiest market to get out in a sense of exit are the market where you've got a, a liquid local market uh, for equity. So we've not that seen necessarily extent like foreign buyers uh, walking away from the market, but I think they may have more question in relation to the public finances where the, the locals buyer make more the difference is to the extent the nature of the reviews is a local currency. And um, South Africa, in that sense, having a very deep pool of uh, investors which are willing to invest long term. So um, it was a very easy exit. Uh, as no doubt, um, uh, I don't want to prep Dina, the other sectors where we've seen a lot of activity uh, and uh, where we're trying to um, both exit and enter the asset class is on what we call the digital infrastructure space. Again, as the sector has fared very well, um, in the current uh, macro environment, so I think that we, we, we're not a, that's why we expect it to uh, to be uh, also a- attractive for potential buyer. Um, so th- that's the two sectors where we had planned exit for uh, 2020. Uh, to say we, we have also some transport assets. I think uh, if, if we had planned for any of the an exit for any of the transport assets, I think it would have been a, a very difficult story, uh, and I don't think we'll have been uh, actually trying even to exit. Yes, no, understood. And have you seen, um, you know, in the, in the exits you've, you've managed to do or, or areas, sort of other discussions in the market? I mean, how, how are you seeing sort of buyers and sellers' value expectations? Is there a gap there or, or is there, are, are there ways of finding out to sort of bridge that gap? Um, I think it's, there is a lot of market specific. In South Africa, we didn't see any uh, value expectation gap for the simple reason that a lot of people price of the risk-free rate and the government yield in RAND have actually decreased, not increased, in a sense, from a, a macro standpoint. Um, I think the um, – so, so from th- that, we've seen a very liquid market. We were, in fact, positively surprised by what the, uh, the, the prices which we, we've seen. Um, I think that will be very different uh, for the rest of Africa, where we'll have expected um, the prices to be – to have a value expectation gap just because of the – deteriorating macro situation. So I think when we distinguish that, I would say, in average, uh, I think you will have a value expectation gap. And the, the more the asset class is exposed or, or, or the less you know, visibility you, you have on it due to COVID, the, the greater the uh, value expectation gap will be. Yes, no, understood. Um, so, Stefan, moving to you, obviously, I know you, you completed the, uh, the Mobilac exit earlier in the year, obviously one of the significant exits which is, has been done this year. You know, how, how did you find that process and, and then the market since then? Well, I, I think Mobilac is a good example of uh, why maybe the numbers you were, you were giving us are a bit misleading. Mobilac was actually signed end of 2019, beginning of 2020. So COVID didn't exist at that time. So a deal that closed in April uh, is probably a deal that was already very well advanced before the COVID uh, uh, crisis. So uh, we saw a lot of exit being concluded in Q1, Q2 that were, you know, only subject to some confirmatory due diligence on some 
numbers of 2019 being confirmed, uh, which is our case, we had a hell of a time to, to close remotely with a Dutch choir, Axo Noble, so it was very complicated, but we only faced logistical issues, if you will, on Movilag, not fundamental questions around valuation and current trading. And by the way, Movilag is also a very interesting counterexample because when people are locked down in Mauritius and depressed, they tend to paint their house. So uh, actually, the COVID was actually a very good period, and they made a very good uh, acquisition. But that's, that's a side story. So I think um, uh, in terms of, uh, of Movilag, it's, it's an example of a deal that closed, but that was actually prepared much before the COVID uh, crisis. Now that we are in the middle of the COVID crisis, I would echo as, what Nathalie <laughs> was saying, that most of the process we've been seeing uh, have started quite well. The pipeline was quite full, uh, except that at the end of Q1, Q2, we were asking for current, or we were asked in our own exits for current trading updates, uh, what's the impact of COVID. And as the months were progressing, most of the processes were either delayed, postponed, even canceled. And I, and I think today uh, there is still an active pipeline, I would say around three key types of deals, at least for the private equity side, um, high-quality company that can actually demonstrate that the COVID had a limited impact, almost no impact on their business. So it's actually quite attractive. Uh, for seller, people that just have to sell, uh, funds that are at the end of their investment period, corporate that really want to get out at whatever price, or emergency funding where the company is actually not doing well. And you need to have the guts to invest uh, to sustain the company in a period where they, are, they have a hard time uh, finding financing. So I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that the trend you were describing for S1 uh, is going to become a little bit more uh, yeah, difficult for S2, uh, especially also because I don't think there will be a lot of, uh, of deals closing uh, on the back of the S1 numbers. Um, no, no, I understood that. And have you seen, I mean, like, like Natalie obviously mentioned, you know, over the last month, two months, she's seen sort of, you know, increasing activity levels and the beginning of new processes. Are you are you starting to think about that? Are you seeing that in yeah. the market? I think a lot of a lot of the people have done their homework trying to analyze the current trading of their companies, uh, trying to carve out the effect of COVID and present numbers and present activity. Uh, now that we understand a little bit better the mechanism that uh, that were behind the impact on the companies, either on profitability and cash, and so we are seeing more and more pro processing trying to kick off again. Uh, but most of them, at least the answer we got on our side when we tried to restart uh, uh, exit processes and actually what we are saying to our peers when they come to us is a lot of people I would like to, okay, move on, try to look at the deal, but they always put 2020 numbers as a condition. So um, so I guess those deals will only close in Q1 next year once we have a very clarity, uh, clarity on, the, on the real numbers for the year. Yeah. Okay. And Nina, perhaps, perhaps moving to you and, and to get your perspective as, as a sort of investment banker. I mean, obviously you spend a lot of time talking to clients about their ability to exit. I mean, what are your, your perspectives on the environment at the moment? Yes. Well, uh, Nick, I think uh, my fellow um, presenters have, have, you know, pretty much covered most of, most of the points. I mean, the, the, the reality is that, uh, you know, we, we haven't really uh, seen that many processes or, or processes that, that are uh, private equity led, if you will, um, through the crisis uh, so far for the reasons outlined. Um, I can probably think about maybe one or two where despite COVID and despite the sector not being the most resilient, 
uh, we continued with the process and we had literally just, just started the process. Um, we're coming toward the end of it and that's going to be a very interesting um, case uh, and, and perhaps an interesting case for what we might see going forward. Um, you know, it's been a lot slower, um, uh, you know, issues around uh, diligence um, have been there. But what I would say is that the market is starting to find ways to deal with that because at the end of the day, one has to. And so um, even though uh, buyers are asking for, you know, physical, some will want a physical meeting and it's very difficult uh, not to have had one. Um, you know, we, we, we had a virtual uh, tour um, in one of the processes that worked quite well. Uh, and another potential buyer, you know, most of the buyers, in fact, in this process are private equity, um, uh, appointed a local um, consultant uh, to help them uh, with the diligence in, in, the diligence in, that, in that country. So people are, are finding ways around it. Um, I think we will get there. There is sufficient interest. Um, you know, valuation perhaps is not going to be for the reasons outlined what one would have expected pre-COVID. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not, it's not like we're seeing, you know, an awful lot of processes that have continued or even started. I would echo what was said by Natalie and Stefan that uh, more private equity are starting to uh, launch processes that they had thought about launching previously. So we're definitely seeing that. Um, and, and, uh, and, and of course there are, you know, other situations that don't necessarily just relate to private equity, but they, you know, they all have, you know, the, the, the same, uh, challenges. Um, one other challenge is suppose that we think we're going to have to find a way to deal with if this persists and we don't know how long this will persist for is, and what seems to, to be making processes a lot longer is, you know, once you get to, you know, toward the end and, and you need to get people in a room and, and hammer out the final, you know, negotiating points, it's just been very, very difficult to do that. Um, also, approvals have been have been very long. I mean, we, we, we had a, a, you know, situation where the deal was basically done at the end of last year. We just got our approvals now and it's almost October. So, um, but, but I w what I would say is people are, are, have learned a little bit to deal with the situation. And we do expect more to come down the road and sector, geography, and, and where, you know, one thinks the buyer is going to come from are absolutely fundamental um, and, and it will continue to be fundamental in, in, in what we see going forward. Yeah, and to the, to the, to the point around sort of, you know, the, the buyer universe, and that's been, been kind of picked up a couple of times. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess question, well, I suppose, just starting with, with some context, obviously, you know, Appreciate numbers are sort of just a snapshot, but when you looked at the, you know, the AFCA numbers for, for last year and the exits, we saw, you know, sort of almost close to half the exits were trade buyers. Um, you know, private equity was was more around sort of 23 percent, um, and, and then only a very small number of IPOs. I mean, when we when we get to the end of 2020 and look back, do you think that that will be similar, or or you expect that the balance to have shifted? Well, it's kind of a difficult question to answer because, again, we will not have seen that many deals, right? And 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 I think as Natalie said, or and and Stefan, I mean, some of the deals were already in train, um, and 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 we've seen some trade, we've seen some private equity. Um, in in fact, you know, I would have thought that perhaps there'll be more private equity 
uh, uh, you know, more private equity buyers, and that percentage is quite low compared to what we've seen before. We did see trade buyers uh, come in a bit more strongly compared to previous years last year. Um, but I do think we'll see more private equity. You know, a number have funds to deploy. Uh, we are getting a lot of calls uh, about opportunities, asking about opportunities, um, about, uh, you know, how, you know, uh, funds can be deployed. Um, and, and so whilst, you know, COVID can be an opportunity as well uh, uh, in, in terms of, of, you know, one, of course, doesn't want to go and invest in a situation that's never going to turn around, but it is being viewed as an opportunity and certain sectors are attracting quite a lot of attention. Uh, Remain mentioned digital infrastructure, but not just digital infrastructure. Um, and so I do think private equity will play a role. Um, uh, and, and we are seeing, um, you know, private equity with, you know, some private equity houses with a fair bit of money that they do uh, want to deploy. Uh, and I would even say are quite anxious to deploy. Yes, understood. And I mean, Natalie, you touched on before perhaps the, the challenge for, for international buyers. I mean, what, where do you see the sort of, you know, the buyers coming from? Is that likely to be particular organizations across the continent? Is it likely to be private equity houses? You know, private equity houses that are sort of already embedded with teams on the continent? Yeah, Nick, I, I, I definitely think there has been a swing back towards the local and, and regional, um, you know, for the practical reasons that I outlined, but also I think, you know, people are more focused on their on their home territory. And I think what, the other thing that is coming coming through post-COVID is, Obviously, you know, an environment where that was quite tough from an economic perspective, there will there would have been some competitors that would have fallen by the wayside or have would have been weakened through this process. So I think those corporates or those strategic buyers that are opportunistic uh, will be looking for consolidating opportunities in this environment. And I think there's you know, so that that would be one set of buyers. And uh, and the other set of buyers that we're also seeing emerging are what I'm going to call bargain hunters, you know, um, guys that are thinking, you know, coming out of this, maybe we can pick up something um, at, at a good valuation. So, you know, we've certainly seen kind of unusual buyers that we wouldn't, not the kind of mainstream buyers from before, that we're, we're seeing a, a bit of that coming through as well. Okay. Um, look, Stefan, perhaps we uh, we move on slightly and, and move on and think a little bit more around sort of, of exit terms. Um, and I know when you were talking before, you you obviously picked up the importance of of sort of 2020 earnings. I mean, I guess it'd be good to, to get your perspectives around how you perhaps see, you know, differences in, in deal terms driven by the current market and to what extent people are using, you know, sort of traditional techniques, things like completion accounts or or whether you're seeing the development of, of perhaps some more bespoke pricing protections and bespoke pricing issues to, to address COVID. Yeah. Um, no, clearly there is, um, in this uncertain environment, uh, very volatile, there is clearly an evolution in uh, around deal terms. Uh, we touched about, I mean, we touched upon a few of them. Maybe if I summarize, around valuation first, the terms are, um, a little bit new in a sense that to make evaluation of a company, you need a normative, a sustainable kind of profitability to which you apply a multiple. Uh, the way we apprehend or the way uh, potential buyers approached us on our portfolio on how they would look at the performance of the company uh, is actually quite different right now. They are trying to carve out, as I explained, the COVID impact, try to understand what is a sustainable level of uh, of performance, and we are more and more seeing pitches, teasers, uh, wherever, where basically people are presenting us what we would call a, 
an EBITDAC, which is an EBITDA before COVID. <laughs> so you just add a C at the end. Um, it's almost a joke, but I mean, it's, it's more and more. I mean, you, you see listed company trying to publish this kind of uh, aggregate. So, um, so we're all trying to find the right normative uh, performance metrics to which we apply a multiple where there clearly there are some sectors that are trading at a high discount and others that are more in favor. We'll talk about it, I think, later and where it deserve maybe a premium. Um, and so that combination of those two facts are making, uh, is clearly making the exercise of valuing company very different today than it was, I would say, a year ago. Uh, and so we see a lot of evolution on the valuation metrics and the valuation. The second thing I would say is that uh, we've been requested on one of our exit process very early on exclusivity. And actually we do the same, which is it's so difficult to work on a new deal today logistically to run the numbers, to assess the current trading, to value, et cetera, that given the time efforts you need to, 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 um, to dedicate to the potential investment, you tend to ask for exclusivity quite early on in the process. And so I see more and more deals around me where basically they are under exclusivity with somebody. And actually, it's quite long exclusivity. I'm not talking six weeks. I'm talking people granting exclusivity for four or five months um, for the buyers to basically have a judgment, obviously on the basis of a, of a non-indicative, non-binding offer. But still, uh, deals are moving faster, I would say, than before in exclusivity, maybe also because of what Naitali was saying, that the universe of competition is not huge. So if you have a good party in front of you motivated with an acceptable price, why not move on with him? Anyway, you will not build a lot of momentum with competition. And the third thing is that there is an obsession now, more than before, I would say, around protection mechanism, which are uh, not paying the full price today because we don't know about the numbers, so I'm going to put in place a deferred payment or an earnout. I'm not going to buy the company 100%, but only 80%, and the next 20% would be two years from now on the basis of the ISO multiple, whatever. People are designing reps and warranties, um, some relution mechanism and price adjustment depending on the performance of the coming 12 months. So we are seeing more and more creative, I would say, protection mechanism, which are actually, uh, and actually we discussed that in another forum, Nick, together, very interesting on paper, but how are we going to enforce those two, three years down the road? I don't know. But uh, at least it's complexifying a lot of the negotiation right now uh, on several deals we are looking at because we are trying to maybe over-engineer some level of protection in those deals. Okay, good. Your perception and and Roman, from from your perspective, are you are you seeing buyers more cautious, perhaps asking for for more protections than they might have done in the past? So I think just um, from a buyer putting my buyer's hat, I will see more protection. Um, in reality, we've not seen them too much for two two reasons. One is selectivity. What we've seen is people being much more selective, and some assets are just not going to move in this current market. Um, either because the, if you have an airport, you have zero passengers, so what's the new normal? What's your be back? Good luck uh, to try to, to define anything. Or um, uh, simply because the, the macro is just too volatile. Um, cannot get your minds around government finances, and government is, is providing some support to your project, your off-taker, so you're, you're a bit struggling with that. Or just currency is moving so much that you're, you're a bit struggling on that. Now, the, um, where we've seen people moving... Um, very easily. The first case is you've got existing shareholders buying you out. So they will do it. At the, they know the asset. They're comfortable. Um, they, the protection are, are not there. So that's easy, the easiest deal. And on contracted asset, um, again, um, people have been um, 
much more relaxed, no further protection. And in fact, what we've seen, I would say, on, on one process uh, in South Africa is um, the, uh, the price expectation definitely, been, we've been a bit shocked by the, positively by the numbers. So we're seeing increasing competition. I and mean, if you are a pension fund, if you are a life insurance, in which asset class are you going to deploy money at this point in time of the crisis? Commercial real estate looks tight, government bond, not greater yield. So I think people are looking for yield enhancement and infrastructure is having the benefits of that for contracted assets. So perhaps a, a convergence into some sectors and therefore you are, you are still seeing very competitive processes with, with kind of an ability for sellers to, to hold the line on deal terms. Correct. And, and Natalie, from, from your perspective, what have, what have you been seeing in terms of perhaps what, what either you're asking for or, or what you've seen buyers asking for on, on discussions you have ongoing? Yeah, Nick, I mean, definitely what um, Stefan and Roman are saying, we, we're, we're seeing exactly the same across the deals that we're working on. I think just to be, to be additive, the other, the other aspect that is getting a lot of attention, um, more so than I suppose in, in, in a normal environment, is, is the cash and the, and the normal working capital. Um, you know, obviously through, through a period where um, supply chains were interrupted, the stock in a lot of companies was totally run down, um, you've got on the other side creditors being stretched. So when, when a buyer is looking at the business, you know, they, they're looking at, or CapEx has been put on hold. Um, now obviously the, the seller will say, no, this is kind of, this, this, this is in, in, in the normal course. But you're having to kind of land and, and figure out when, you know, the world returns to normal. What will the, will the normal level of working capital be? What will the normal level of, of CapEx be? Um, has there been some costs that have been cut in COVID that will come back, um, you know, in the following year? So there's, there's definitely a, a a big focus on on working capital and working capital adjustments, um, and we've also seen, you know, I think you know the lockbox of you know closing mechanism is, is one that I think has has been more popular, um, and we're seeing people now looking for closing accounts, which kind of you know kicks the can down the road and gives us more visibility. More visibility. So I think that's probably also a change that we've seen um, in the negotiations around exits. Okay, and, and I look, I guess Nina, coming to you in terms of you know some of those comments that have been made. If you know if you are there now advising a, a private equity client that's considering launching an exit process, you know, are you going to be suggesting that they pitch the process in a sort of slightly different manner, recognising some of these kind of requests they're going to get? So, so Nick, I mean, again, it's 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 all very situation dependent, right? Um, and 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 clearly. Uh, in in some sectors, you know, one you know potentially you know, one would 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 look at at it you know quite differently. I mean, the industrial sector more generally um, has probably, in addition to hospitality, of course, has probably been the hardest hit. Uh, I think it's a matter of uh, you know uh, there it's you know it, 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 it's a matter of of, of uh, you know having a process that um, perhaps. Uh, one doesn't go as widely. One and the, these comments have been made before. You, one really needs to look realistically um, at who the potential buyers are. But you know, buyers that are more local, whether they are um, you know private equity or or trade or otherwise. Um, you know, so so yes. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, it really is situation uh, dependent. Uh, you know, there are other situations where. Um, Again, we have seen uh, almost a, a froth in the market, uh, and, and, and to some extent that's explainable because some sectors, and, and, and Romain mentioned this in terms of infrastructure, but digital infrastructure more broadly, 
you know, uh, we see this uh, globally and, and we see it in, in Africa and, and perhaps for good reason. Um, although, say, in the fintech space, uh, you know, we have seen some multiples come back and multiples of revenue uh, that we had thought were uh, a bit, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, something that we were seeing in, in the past that stopped a little bit. Uh, but now we're, you know, we're seeing, um, again, some pretty, you know, hefty, uh, you know, valuations uh, perhaps being considered for some of these assets. It's, it's really uh, very uh, sector specific. It's very geography specific uh, in terms of what advice uh, one uh, would, uh, you know, would provide uh, with the, the client with. Um, I think it's important to uh, plan well ahead. Uh, and, and that's important in any, uh, under any circumstances um, and have a, a very clear, you know, idea. There's one process where a potential trade buyer came forward and in part as a result of that, um, our private equity client decide, decided to uh, launch the process. It gave them a little bit more confidence, um, you know, local buyer again, uh, that, you know, th th there would be, you know, sufficient competition out there to, you know, to complete the process. Okay, thank you. So, I mean, a real, you know, a real combination of factors, obviously, driving the, the particular terms which are achieved, clearly, as, as Natalie touched on, uh, you know, the very important focus on, uh, and Stefan as well, the sort of financial side. I mean, in terms of, you know, some of the, the points you raised that perhaps go more into the, the sort of legal terms. I mean, a lot of a lot of what you've all said echoes um, some of the things which we're seeing. Um, you know, initially when the pandemic started, there was there was obviously a real focus on max. You know, everyone was looking: could you walk away from the deal because of this, or renegotiate the price? You know, do you need a Mac on on any future deal you do? You know, and, and look, it's you know when we look now at the, at the market and and sort of post-COVID SPAs. You know, we definitely see more Macs um, in documents than we did in the past, but actually the, the market is a lot more sophisticated than that and, and really has recognised that, that very often you, people weren't able to use Mac clauses and actually there are other areas which are more significant. So probably the biggest change we've seen is around pricing, you know, definitely a move towards, you know, earn out deferred type structures, um, as well as increased use, as Natalie said, of, of completion accounts rather than not box. Um, but then also some, you know, sort of more bespoke protections around seeking to, to sort of normalise the, the COVID impact. Aside from pricing, definitely downside protections. So we've seen more, um, you know, joint ventures rather than 100% deals. Um, you know, perhaps use of more, you know, convertibles and other instruments that, that have got that sort of downside protection inherent in them. And, and I mean, look, from my perspective, I think the really, the really interesting topic to be played out is, is to what extent the some of these transactions being more biofriendly will represent a permanent shift or or as activity levels rebound and perhaps we're already seeing in some of the the more competitive processes actually sellers are able to hold the line and and secure terms that that actually are very similar to those that that people were securing pre-covid so, so it's still to be played out but but clearly a number of, of developments there i guess the the next area i just wanted to, to talk more about was was implementing exits in practice and, and Nina, I know you touched on this as you were talking about, you know, the, the market developing and, and different ways to, to deal with things. Um, so we'll come to that, that area next. I guess just a reminder, if, if any of the audience would like any questions to answer any questions, then 
the Q&A facility is available. So please submit your questions and, and they will come through to us and, and we'll try and answer them, them before the end of the session. So thinking about this, this sort of implementing exits, uh, Roman, perhaps sort of starting with, with due diligence, you know, we've seen lots of talk about people um, getting drone footage and, and that is the way you can now do a, a site visit. You know, is that is that realistic generally for, for energy and infrastructure assets? I think I would, you don't need to go as far. There is a number of, of um, I would say, part of the asset class, greenfield project, digital, and, and most of the power asset where remote due diligence is uh, relatively easy to conduct. Um, I think, like Stefan, I think the, the buyers which, uh, and us, the buyers which are having a presence on the ground across the continent, that's another massive advantage when, you know, either selling or when, when you're trying to look at other assets because your, your team is already there and, and can travel locally or within the country. I think where the, at least in our experience, where we're currently seeing the two areas of due diligence or, or the deal which are a bit more challenging. The first one is on the ESG side, um, either human intensive asset or asset with um, a fair amount of social challenges. And for example, as we speak today, we got one of the top three, well, not as investor, but one of the top three bank in Cote d'Ivoire is having 90% of the branch network shut down because social unrest. So I think just um, to be able to perceive that through DD process without being on the ground, that's going to be very challenging. Um, similarly, I think at one stage, you know, all of us, we are, we are backing management teams. Uh, we want to understand, get comfortable with the management. And, and this, process, this is very, di very difficult to build relationship, getting comfortable uh, remotely. Um, and that's where a bit people are suffering from the uh, uh, digital fatigue. Okay. Um, and, and Natalie, obviously, the, the sort of the types of businesses you're looking at are, are often quite, quite different. I mean, what, what impact are you, are you seeing on the DD side? Yeah, Nick, I mean, I think there's, you know, through this process, um, I think all of us have become a lot more um, efficient on using Zoom. So, you know, this kind of platform that, we, or that we're using at the moment, you know. So there's, I think the, the, there will be a change from the way that diligence gets done. Um, and particularly, you know, the, the days of kind of shipping all the lawyers and the bankers and the financial advisors, you know, to, to a management presentation for a week or three days or whatever, locked in a room. I think those days are over. Um, I think a lot of that kind of the technical side of diligence, and I'm talking about the financial, legal, and um, tax side, I think will be done online and 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 virtually. Um, and obviously, and that's actually been, you know, in this environment, it's almost been quite easy because it's much easier to to get diary time if you're just trying to, you know, drop into somebody's an hour into somebody's diary. Whereas, you know, trying to find a week or a couple of days where you're having to get together is, is harder. But obviously, on the flip side, what you can't do remotely is develop the relationship, which is obviously a key part of what private equity is all about, you know, developing that relationship with management and ensuring that you are aligned with them um, strategically and also from a values perspective. So you do spend a lot of time with management in those diligent processes. And to the extent that that's going to go online, you are, we are going to have to be a lot more deliberate um, in, in building those relationships and ensuring that we get that comfort um, ahead of the time. But I... In, in a way, I think diligence will be easier going forward because of these kind of online virtual platforms that have, that have kind of sprung out and, and really developed through the, the COVID time. Um, but we must just make sure we don't, you know, lose the, the human elements of it, which, um, you know, that, that's where things can definitely go wrong if you get that wrong in private equity. 
So you're seeing it as perhaps a sort of more a more permanent change in some of the the benefits of the diligence processes. Um, but, but clearly, there's there's a lot of other aspects of this where you know the building the relationships is key, and, and we need to find ways of, of doing that. Yeah. And, and Stefan, I mean, I know we, we've spoken before about this area. I mean, that's you know how how do you go about thinking about sort of maintaining and and building those relationships in in that remote environment and ensuring that that deals are ultimately able to to get over the line. Listen, I I think the the current environment has been quite tough on us as investors. Uh, I would say on the, on three dimensions, uh, and I'm not going to repeat what has been said. But the first one is how can we build to, uh, remotely a conviction on the on the performance and on the health of a company? Performance the way being the way it has been uh, managed, uh, and the health being the way it's it, it, the state in which it is and is it exhausted company? Do they have the cash? Do they still have the human resources internally? And without being able to be on the ground and, and retest, interview people and, and feel what Romain was saying of maybe this company is doing well on paper and has a good margin, but what you don't know and you didn't realize that the people behind this company on the ground are actually suffering a lot from the crisis. They are just exhausted. And any change of shareholder will be actually the last coup you can make to, to, to make sure that this company is going to collapse. You, you don't know. You don't, you don't understand the working cap very well. Uh, you know, so the, 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 the conviction on the deal is the first thing that is very tough for us to assess today remotely. Hopefully, we have offices on the ground and team on the ground, so that's helpful. But we are looking at deals that are pan-African sometimes in countries where we are not, and we're always facing that issue. The second one is what Nina was saying. To close a deal, you need momentum. And at some point in time, you have to, to have people in the room to agree on a document and sign the document. You are a lawyer. You know that. Conference call can go for hours. People just, you know, hang up and they come back the next day with five comments. If you have the principles in the room, at least you create a momentum and you, you have a target and you move to a closing. Remotely, it's much more difficult to do that because we are behind a screen and, and, and it's easy to push back and find arguments and come back, etc. Like any exchange by phone versus an email. So the momentum is lacking. And the last one is what Natalie was saying, is that you, when you invest in a company, you invest with management, maybe with other shareholders, maybe maintaining the existing shareholders in part uh, as co-investors as co with you as partners. And trust is very important because it's going it's gonna to guide the project you're putting together in place. And without being on the, on the ground once again, it's extremely difficult to build that trust and mutual understanding of what is a project we are trying to design. So, so for all those three reasons, I find it extremely difficult to do deals remotely um, so, yeah, I, I would say that this is the, the, the part that we will not be able to solve with technology. Due diligence, I'm not worried, and all those maybe virtual, whatever, management presentation, whatever, but uh, having consultant doing the due diligence in lieu of, you, of yourself, etc. I think all that we learned a lot, and I think we, we're going to travel much less. Um, but those three points, building a real conviction, uh, creating momentum to go to a closing, and building the relationship. Oh, I think we've just we've lost lost Stefan there. I think he was he was coming towards the the end of his comments there. Just um just looking at the Q and A, there's a, there's a few questions coming through there. Um, one of the questions which was um which was addressed is the extent to which people are looking at distress situations. Neither I don't know to what extent you've seen um distress situations coming across your desk or or equally any of the panelists have been have been looking at you know it was touched on earlier the the opportunities that that might result from from some distress situations. 
So yes, no, I think we, we have made some comments to that effect. Um, there are parties that are looking at distress situations, uh, not just uh, parties that typically look at distress situations, um, but also uh, we, we, you know, we have some clients that, you know, historically perhaps as an example, uh, would not have focused as much on South Africa. Uh, you know, the currency as well has been extremely volatile, et cetera. But, you know, it's coming to the point where, you know, assuming the valuation expectations have, you know, have changed materially, underlying companies, uh, you know, look like they're good companies, uh, you know, we are seeing definitely uh, more interest uh, generated as a result of that. Okay. Any of any of the other panelists like to comment on distress situations? Currency has been more a source of uh, business this year. We've seen a number of SOEs, especially with energy assets, trying to uh, dispose of this energy. But what we're seeing is a pretty, a pretty tough competition to buy them. With, um, as I said, uh, I was very surprised by the prices people were willing to pay. Yeah. No, understood. Um, other questions coming in. One was around um, the extent to which you know the, the panelists would would look to to use of third parties in terms of conducting local due diligence services um, in countries where you don't have a presence. I know a number of you have presence in a number of markets, but clearly you do deals where you don't have a presence. Um, I don't know whether anyone has any any views around. You know, obviously we've touched on remote diligence to some extent, but but the need to use and engage more third parties. Nick, I mentioned that we've seen it in a process, but I think it's for the other panelists to answer the question. But we have seen that. Yeah, Nick. I mean, from from our side, I don't. I mean, we we found very difficult to outsource diligence. I mean, I think we would always want to be on top of the diligence completely. Um, regardless of, of where it is, but we always do use um, third parties on, you know, on the technical aspects, on the on the legal aspects. We'll have a legal firm doing that. So on the tax diligence, we'll have a tax consultant doing that. So certainly for those aspects that are more kind of desktop um, diligence, that we will we we do even locally. We'll, we will use third party consultants. But but to really get under the skin of the business, understand the the, the management team, understand the the markets. Um, you know, I think the private equity house still has to, to well, well, certainly we would want to travel. We would not rely on, on third parties for that key aspect of the diligence. Yeah. I think there is maybe also a middle ground where, you know, where we have local offices. We have also some, most of the time invested company in the country. So it depends if you consider even see company employees or, 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 or people which are not the employees of yours on the ground as resources. But, you know, we've, we've transacted across maybe half of the country in Africa. So we have either people on the ground, which are not necessarily aim branded, but we've got also advisor and others which will really build relationship. I think in a country where we've never operated uh, or in a country where we, we've not worked before with the local person doing the due diligence, I think that will be extremely challenging in the current environment to do it um, um, through someone you've not built trust or relationship before. Okay. Um, another another question coming through. Um, so so this is really in the context of you know if for those sort of perhaps sectors where where valuations are seen as, as more challenging at a portfolio company level um, or perhaps businesses aren't quite right for exit at the moment. I mean, do the panelists think the secondary market, so sort of transactions at the LP level, you know, might represent a an alternative? 
Yeah, Nick, I'm happy to comment on that. I mean, yes, it does present an alternative, but I think you just need to think about where you are in your valuation cycle, because obviously with um, COVID, um, you know, certainly Q1 with the, you know, with the multiples being absolutely smashed globally and, 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 and currencies, and there would have been some disruption in Q2 from, from earnings. Valuations, I think, across the board would have, would have dipped. I think they will come back, and they are starting to come back. But to go to a, the LPs now with a, a Q1 or Q2 valuation and then look to do a, um, a secondary on that with probably some kind of discount, I think the LPs are probably going to say, well, hold on, can you, you know, let's wait for some normality to, to return. So I think there is that option, but just the timing of it and where the, value, where the valuation of the portfolio is sitting, I think, will, will, will be a discussion point. Yeah, no, Sorry, Stefan. No, I and I think also it depends. I mean, I, if I take the example of Adenia, where we are always in control or 100% shareholders of our company, I don't think a lot of LPs would like to take over control of a company. So I think it's maybe easier for minority stakes, but for majority stakes, I have a hard time imagining uh, DFI is taking control. I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit more challenging, apart from valuation. Yeah, I suppose unless you're doing it as a... a, a you know, a GP-led secondary and you are effectively going in and, and setting up a new fund and, and giving, you know, obviously giving the sort of realisation to some of the existing investors who for some reasons perhaps need to come out. But then, you know, I do, I do take the point that it's it's got to be for the right investors. And clearly, it, you know, yes, it may be more straightforward in terms of you have the ability to exit a portfolio of assets, but obviously it's one that um, you know, still needs those same underlying issues to be to be addressed. I mean, look as we're as we're coming towards the the end of the time. I wanted to, what I wanted to do now is sort of finish perhaps by by looking ahead and, and thinking about what the what the market is likely to hold for the rest of this year and, and looking ahead into 2021. I mean, Natalie, from a sort of pricing perspective, what do you see that buyers are going to be particularly focused on? Yeah, Nick, I think, um, you know, whenever the world emerges from a crisis, the investing community does tend to favor defensible, um, defensive and, and sustainable businesses, right? So I think those kind of businesses will, will, um, command a, a higher premium and, and we've seen it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, one of the other panelists, um, mentioned that as well, where some processes are running around these more kind of what are seen as defensive sectors. Um, you know, we, make, we mentioned digital infrastructure. There, I think there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of interest. Um, and, and multiples will, will, will be healthy. I think if you're sitting in a business that, that is more, um, you know, more kind of consumer facing on the discretionary side, those will, will suffer. I think those, you know, the, to, to try and command a decent multiple in, in that environment will be difficult. I mean, first of all, a lot of these businesses have been, um, shut or, um, you know, trading at very poor levels through, through COVID. And clearly, the, the the consumer going forward, you know, through retrenchments, you know, a lot of people have been made redundant um, in markets, particularly in South Africa and, and you know the rest of the continents as well. So I think the consumer outlook for discretionary is 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 is, is quite low as well. So I think it just depends where on the spectrum um, you're looking to invest. I think the defensive sustainable industries will will command higher premiums, and those that are more discretionary will will um you know will will naturally be trading at a discount. Okay, and then look, I mean, sort of picking up perhaps that, that sort of variances across different sectors and really sort of turning over to, to kind of other panellists and I'll, I'll give them each an opportunity in turn. I mean, um, Stefan, do you want to start in terms of which, which sectors you might see where there's likely to be, you know, particular transactions driving activity going forward? Uh, I think realistically investors, as Natalie was saying, will, will look at the 
at the sectors that have been sustainable and resilient during this crisis. So I would say that uh, we all understood that telecom technology uh, were actually resisting quite well and actually becoming a little bit more essential uh, through that crisis with working from home and remote due diligence only in our business. We can see that technology is actually uh, taking more more space and is becoming more important. I think we all understood that uh, healthcare, pharma were, were, were quite interesting segments um, and sectors quite resilient. So those are the usual suspects. The question we, we, we can ask ourselves is, is maybe some of us will go completely the opposite way for a risk return perspective, saying I'm going to go after tourism, hospitality, bars, restaurants, and airlines, uh, just because I'm going to pay them zero. And there is no reason tourism is going to die. You know, there is no reason uh, hotel are not going to reopen. And I think there are great deals to be done today, but um, not sure it's in our DNA to say those deals right now. Uh, at least I'm not sure I would be the first one to try to do that. So that may make sense. Yeah, 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 explaining that one to your investors while you're the, the market leader there. Remain, from your perspective, you touched on, on digital info before. Is that is that a, a sort of particular sector you see that um, there's going to be more focus on? I think it's definitely coming on the map. Um, I think, you know, just um, there is not that many countries on the continent which are uh, where you can have a critical size in the sector. So I think that there are transactions for people which are experienced, but, you know, there's not, uh, there's half a dozen of them which will potentially happen in the next 18 months. I think the, the other space where we're seeing, which is, um, uh, which have shown resilience and, in fact, which have shown maybe uh, the best potential during the crisis is off-grid energy and distributed power. Um, and people have realized that uh, often the, the value proposition is better than what, what has been offered by uh, state-owned entities. And what we've, or, or sometimes communities have not been as affected as the people living in urban areas. And, and as a result, uh, having cash to deploy. So that we've been, uh, um, very impressed. I mean, we got a couple of investments, uh, in the space. And, uh, I would have said that all of them have overperformed, uh, the first semester's budget, despite the, despite the situation. And yes. mostly a very strong Q2. It was a very strong Q2 performance. Okay, no, that's good to hear. And, and Nina, sort of conscious of time, and anything last you'd add in terms of other sectors? Yeah, I know I would add uh, the non-bank uh, fixed space, you know, asset managers. Uh, we've already seen a couple of deals in that space. Um, you know, telematics, I suppose that's uh, more technology. And um, even education, I mean, education has been a hot sector uh, you know, at the moment, everybody's trying to figure out, you know, what the hybrid model potentially uh, will look like. Uh, but, you know, there are a, a number of assets out there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, those would be the ones that, um, that I would add. Okay. So that a real, a real variety of sectors. And hopefully, as, as promised at the beginning, that, that gives us all some, some positive sentiments to, to take forward. I mean, look, on, on that note, I'd like to, um, to thank my panel, um, Natalie, Remain, um, Stephanie and Nina um, for their time today um, and then to thank the, the audience for, for listening and, and also for, for contributing to the, to the Q&A. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, please visit avca-africa.org.